Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, and welcome to an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Today's guest, Coventry Edwards-Pitt, affectionately known as Covey, is a partner and chief creative officer at Ballantine Partners. She is an author who has written a couple of really important books for all of us to read, Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise, and Aged Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise. I won't say which category I belong in. And also has had a number of jobs and positions which make her not just facile in dealing with individual concerns, but with families as well. Welcome, Covey. Thank you, Diana. What a nice intro of me. Uh, Well, it's much earned. Tell me and us, the listeners, a little bit about what I missed here. What is your background and how'd you get started in this field? Well, a little known part of my background is that I was actually pre-med in college Mm -hmm. and I ended up not going into medicine because of what actually some of my doctors were telling me at the time, which is that they had concerns about how the field was changing and whether they'd really be able to practice with their patients in the way they wanted to. And so after then a a long series of, you know, getting a job out of college because I needed a job and therefore going to Wall Street and learning investments when I had taken that one economics class undergrad. And, you know, here we are almost, let's see, 24 years later or so. And one of the things that really drew me to the world of fee-only financial planning or wealth advising was the way in which I think it's actually very akin to medicine, where you essentially have a technical expertise, but that technical expertise essentially just serves to open the door to a human relationship. And for me, the true meaning and fulfillment in my work comes through those human relationships and seeing children go from, you know, eight to a totally awesome rocking, you know, 28 year old. And it's just really, it's been so fulfilling. And I just, I like to tell people about that connection, because I think people don't know this world exists and would actually find this career very fulfilling if they knew about it. Agreed. Well, what I think is so interesting, um, Javi, and actually I didn't know that about your background, but it doesn't come as a total shock because given what you do professionally, I think most people are assuming that your main interaction with families is going to largely be around legal and financial planning, and that's sort of the extent of your role. And I found through our conversations and collaborative work together that that is not the the mindset you bring to this work. So I, I'd love to hear just a little bit about you know, how you think about families holistic and their well-being and how you, you figure your role plays into that in terms of supporting them. Sure. That's funny, Arden. That I'm glad I got a chance to tell you that. <laughs> We've known each other for so long, and <laughs> it's funny how these things come out. Um, so 
Yes, you're so right. And I find our world so interesting because basically when clients come to our firm and firms like ours, generally they have those kind of nuts and bolts issues in their mind. Like I need better investment results or I need this, I just sold my company and I now have all this money and I need somebody to manage it. Or my tax attorney told me that I need someone who's good at helping with wealth transfer strategies. They have these very nuts and bolts things in mind. And of course we do all those things and you know you have to do them well to be in this space. But what I find is that what really emerges over time with working with a family is we are sought for our expertise in as it relates to ways in which money exacerbates problems rather than solves problems. And so, you know, generally I find that that happens to intersect with family, with children, with legacy in terms of how you're remembered. You know, here you have spent a lifetime amassing resources and then if you don't really think carefully about how you are communicating the why around how you're leaving those resources to those who will be left behind, you can sow discord in your family for generations to follow after you've lived on this earth. And so there are really significant ways in which money can be very challenging. And I'm really drawn to the work in terms of how we can help people do the types of planning that is required to mitigate those problems. And I think what I and others at my firm, and and I'm sure others in firms like ours bring to it is, we work with, you know, we work with over 200 families. So when we see a, a new family come in, we've seen this movie play out. You know, they may be at one part in their journey, but we've seen how this goes. And so we're able to bring to them questions and kind of steer them and guide them as we know that they will encounter these various critical junctures along their experience of this wealth journey. That sounds absolutely essential, frankly, because what I see and what I wanted to ask next was, is how do you think wealth in and of itself complicates raising well-rounded children? Yeah, I love this whole concept. You know, is it the money? Is the money just inherently philosophically bad? And I don't think it is. I think it's the way that money very subtly transforms parenting behavior. So, you know, a great example is a child who I I sometimes talk to people about two hypothetical kids, one who's raised in a home without a lot of excess resources, and the second with a home with a lot of excess resources. And, you know, the first kid, maybe when they are six or seven, is starting to get messages about being a good citizen of the home, like you need to make your bed in the morning and keep your room neat and you need to help set the table and do the dishes. And the second child with, uh, I can't remember (laughs) whether I said you have more money first or whatever, but the child who has a more affluent home may have a staff member, either a part-time or full-time, whose job description entails doing those things. And then you kind of roll the clock forward to when that child can drive or when they're anticipating being able to drive and that sense of freedom. And the child who doesn't have an affluent home starts to do the math and realizes, I'm going to want a car, therefore I need money, therefore I need a job. And the second kid is probably just given a car as a, hey, you passed your driving test, you know, congratulations present. And, you know, on and on and on. There are so many examples. And so you can see that in those two hypothetical families, the parents just love their children and want to do right by their children. It just so happens that 
the child in the more affluent home is essentially deprived of lessons that the child in the less affluent home gets by default, by necessity. So a lot of my work is about helping parents essentially have to recreate those experiences that teach those lessons, even though they do not need to have those experiences in their child's life. That is so well said. We had a guest on earlier in the series, Katie Burden, who is my goddaughter. And as a beneficiary of multi-generational trust, her first piece of advice to anybody who's engaging in this field is get a job. A job Mm -hmm. is essential. You know, being able to take care of yourself and be accountable to somebody else was really important for her. I completely agree. You know, one of the key, when I interviewed all of the now grown children who I sort of view as successful because they're grounded and motivated and engaged in life, my grown inheritors, when I interviewed them for my first book, work ethic came out as such a strong, critical component for happiness and engagement. And it's so interesting. I always I always save down to my phone any article I see on parenting. And this article just came out in Inc. Magazine this last week. And it was essentially a, a summary of seven characteristics that parents need to develop in their kids to have them have a happy, fulfilling life. But one of them was essentially quoting someone who said, kids need two things. They need one, love, and two, work ethic. And I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that that work ethic and when parents give children an opportunity to work, what they're really giving them is a very foundational sense of confidence that they'll be able to take care of themselves and they'll be able to understand how to have the discipline to get themselves out of challenging situations in their own life. And I find that what actually leads to a happy life is a person feeling like they will be capable of handling what comes at them in life. That's essentially how we all need to get through. Look at the year we've just come through. I mean, the people who have have been taught a sort of uh, natural resilience or have earned a sense of resilience by having had other challenges in their life that they have been given an opportunity to overcome, I think are better able to make it through a period like we've just been through. Have you noticed, and then I will gladly give the floor over to Arden before I hog completely. (laughs) Have you noticed a shift in parenting attitude over your 20 years in doing this work? I can honestly say that, you know, 20 years ago, when I started doing this work, there was much more embodiment of the idea that kids really needed to prove at least if not value but at least prove that they were able to be productive somewhere in the last 20 years i think that has got lost and i seem to watch parents on the other side of that equation trying to prove to their kids that they are valuable Mm. that's so well said diana Yes, I've definitely seen a shift, you know, whether you call it helicopter parenting or I actually think it's it's less about I want to be in your business, which is sort of how I view helicopter parenting and more about parents themselves generally. And obviously, this is stereotypical. And we're talking about parents who do have resources. But when you have financial resources that you could deploy toward being helpful to your child, I think it's really hard to quote, deny your child that help. 
especially when you see all of your friends in your parenting friend group helping their child have a nicer apartment by subsidizing rent or helping them deal with this problem or that problem. And it's just very hard to step back. And I find most of the work I'm doing with parents is around helping them recast that sense that they are denying their child into a sense that actually they are giving their child a totally invaluable gift, which is the gift of feeling like they can do this for themselves. Um, and that actually you would be denying your child that sense of capacity by helping them. But that is just a complete mind shift that I think is really hard for parents to to deal with because there's sort of peer pressure, I think, among other parents. Um, you're the one family not helping your kid with the rent. So I, I think parents need some courage and some understanding about, you know, keep their eyes on the prize. What is the goal? And I think the goal should be not help my child get out of this situation right here or be more comfortable right now, but it should be help my child in 10 years know that they have built skills and can handle what life throws at them. I think it's a great point, Kavi. And I I think one of the harder questions, and this comes up in our work with clients as well, is what happens when the actions they're taking to, to kind of improve this trajectory and give their child the opportunity to you know, experience whether it's pain or whether it's a sense of accomplishment or whether it's a sense of work ethic, but what happens when it has an impact on a family? So an example, you know, a, a benign example might be, I want kids to learn the value of hard-earned money and I'm not going to just put them all in first class or I'm not going to fly privately. I'm going to try and encourage my kids to earn enough to pay for their own plane ticket for their you know, college trip. But now if we're going as a family, does that mean parents have to kind of abide by those rules too? I mean, that's a fairly simple one, but I think it applies when we think about issues related to substance use and mental health. I mean, we deal with a fair number of families who would agree with everything of what you're saying in theory, but it becomes more difficult to implement when it actually may have ne negative repercussions if they know, you know, they cut off some financial support to their loved ones and it means they either have to move home or the person's calling every day and complaining um, and then the parents have to deal with the emotional stress of that. So I'm curious if you've bumped up against situations like that and what your advice has been. Completely, I mean, that's such a good point, Arden. I think a lot of this is about the sacrifice you're willing to make as a parent in terms of the lifestyle you will lead. So, you know, a great example is you want to teach your child about how to budget. So you might give them a certain budget to plan a vacation. Well, you know, and the outcome there you would want is that your child sticks to that budget. Well, now you, if you're really demonstrating your confidence in your child, will also need to stick to that budget. And you'll have to model not going outside the budget. And I think that it's harder, I think, as affluence has brought so many opportunities to the fore and made it possible to do all these wonderful things, I think it's harder for parents in some ways to deny themselves. Um, and you know to go through the discomfort themselves when they could just when they don't need to you know a great example from my first book was uh, I was interviewing this woman when she was 30, but she was recounting a time when she was a teenager. And the story was all about how her, her parents dealt with the fact that she ran up charges on a credit card that were not approved. And what's amazing to me is it was basically $1,000. I mean, these, these people were 
worth you know multiple tens of millions of dollars. They had to, in reacting to this, which is essentially, it's to make the story shorter, they created a way for her to, with her own skin in the game work, put hours into work to earn that money back, being paid a very small hourly wage. <laughs> and what I think is interesting about this is it changed the trajectory of their summer. You know, they had to understand that they had to draw a line in the sand at $1,000, even though for them it was a complete rounding error and they didn't need her to do this. They didn't need to enforce this for four weeks and deal with whatever, you know, emotional ramifications might be coming at them for holding the line. That's a lot of inconvenience to go through as a parent to make a point to your child. And they had the discipline essentially to deal with the inconvenience so that they could convey this really important message to their child. And it was so effective. It was so effective that when I asked a 30-year-old, which she now is, what was a money message you learned from your parents? This is the first story that she talked about. So that takes, it takes effort and discipline on the part of parents, um, which I think parents, I think there's two things. I think some people may just have trouble <laughs> trouble with that but i also think a lot of parents just don't understand the way their actions are creating negative um implications and so they need to be educated about that yeah i think there's a huge impulse to try and keep our kids happy and happy may not be the same as productive it may not be the same as healthy as you point out in your your book, I don't think you have happy without some measure of healthy. We have a story in my house where my son came home in second or third grade and wailing, saying, I'm not happy and you don't care. And I said, I know. And his jaw <laughs> dropped, right? <laughs> I just said, it's just a feeling. Go out and play. It'll get better. Sometimes in my work, and I think I might have mentioned this to you, Diana, before I use this concept. It's not my concept. I don't even know who came up with this, but I think it's brilliant. Type one fun and type two fun. And type one fun is fun that feels fun, like eating ice cream and, you know, whatever, going to see a movie. And type two fun is the fun that at the time you hate, like practicing your piano or <laughs> all these other things uh, working out, but that upon reflection, you're actually really glad you did and lead to sort of a sustained sense of happiness and fun. And I think actually the majority of what children need to do is type two fun. <laughs> I think, of course, <laughs> they, need, they need type one fun. But a lot of what I think goes into making a, happy, a truly happy human being is having the delayed gratification and self-discipline to endure the type two fun long enough to actually have it become fulfilling. I mean, that's essentially so much of what work ethic is. I, I saw in my research for the first book that parents who talked about their work and talked honestly about the ups and downs of their work helped prepare their kids for the reality of work so that the kids could get through the one day or the week or the month that wasn't wonderful and stick it out long enough to actually develop a sense of pride in what they had achieved. And so I think it's really critical to just equate kids with the sense that there is a type of fun that's not going to feel super happy at the moment, but you'll be glad you did it when you when you look back on it. Or as my dad would have said, someday this will be good for you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 
Right. Character building. If nothing else, it's character building. But I do really think there's just, it's this concept of time. And it's somehow helping a child understand what their own inner adult will think about an experience and helping equip them with a sense, which of course they can't conceive of right then, but equip them with a sense that they will think about this differently at some point. And that's sort of, I think, the role of a parent to be that voice from the child's future because they can't do that for themselves. They just don't have the life experience to understand that. It's so funny because your point here, Covey, goes right into our next question, which is, you know, what do you do in a situation when perhaps there isn't a long-term lesson, or maybe there is one, but you really see a family who's experiencing crisis. So I'm not talking necessarily about Diana's son saying, I'm sad and you don't care. I'm thinking more right. of a family that potentially has you know, a physical or mental well-being challenge that's going to potentially alter the course of the family system's dynamic or that individual's you know, health trajectory. I'm curious, you know, sort of what's your role and how do you support those families? Yes, and I think I think it's important to make the point here that I'm not saying walk away from a child in distress. Um, you know, I think tough love can get to, uh, to, you can take that to an extreme. I think there's a difference between an empathetic, compassionate, loving response and providing financial help that actually does not truly help a child. And so sometimes, sometimes, I think my work is just about disaggregating what would be a loving emotional response and how could you do that without needing to provide financial help as a response and and just sort of helping a parent think through the fact that those are actually two different things. I think that when parents have resources, they tend to mush those two together and think the loving response equals providing money. And it doesn't need to. Now, that said, you know, sometimes you just really need, obviously, I mean, the wonderful work you all do. I mean, sometimes you just really need to have financial resources to bring in, you know, significant expertise and um, skill in dealing with situations with addiction and others and learning disabilities. And so part of the work of, of our firm is understanding the best out there in that. I mean, obviously, why we, leave, why we love you all, but... Um, understanding who are the best people to bring in when there is a crisis like that and understanding that uh, we view our role as being sufficiently in tune with the family, being close enough to really not only know what we can handle, but know when we need to bring in help and know when that help is really needed and who to call. Um, and it, in those situations, of course, it's wonderful to have the re financial resources to bring that help in. And I think that's an excellent use of parents um, money. But, you know, what I know you all do is you help a parent understand how those resources can be of service to a child and how they can be actually detrimental to a child. And I, I think it's all about where to draw that line. So do you have an example of a situation where wealth really had the potential to derail somebody's life, and yet the family was able to steer that ship in a good direction? Well, I mean, I think in some ways it's, it's every example. I mean, it's sort of every, I think it comes down to, I love the Warren Buffett quote. You know, I love, so many people love the Warren Buffett quote. Give your child, you know, so much that they can do anything, but not so much that they do nothing. What I think is actually fascinating about that quote 
is he never puts a dollar amount on that. And if you were actually to put a dollar amount on the amount of money that would enable a child to do nothing, it's an infinitesimally small amount relative to the wealth our clients have. You know, honestly, I, I, it's possible for a child to live non-productively off of annual gift exclusions. So I think it's all about needing to, and this is why I wrote the first book, um, I think parents need to imbue their child with these characteristics like knowing how to abide by a limit, having the drive and work ethic to go seek their own career, being able to have the resilience to get themselves out of a problem. Uh, and, and the fourth characteristic is essentially if you have earned your own way at some point in your life and if you have a career that is of your own choosing that you feel committed to, you have then you're very well along the way of building this sort of foundational sense of self-esteem that is driven more in your own mind by what you have done in your life than what you were given or the advantages you were born into. If you help a child develop those four success factors, I think they're going to be able to withstand any amount of money you give them. If you don't help children develop those success factors, even very small amounts can derail them. So, you know, when there have been situations where kids have been on the wrong path, part of what we do is try to actually help parents typically first look, I'll just say behind every child, I shouldn't be so generalizing, but in ge my experience has shown that often when there's a child who is on not a great path, behind that child is a parent who in some way is behaving in a way that is enabling that child. And they, I'm sure, don't understand that. And when you help them understand that, even understanding it, they can find it very hard to change because it's often about denying a child or saying no to a child that you've spent a very long time saying yes to. But if you can help a parent work through that evolution, you can actually start to get to a situation where a child can start to understand that their success will now be more determined by their own effort and what they do. And they then start to have a sense of agency, which has up until then been essentially denied because there was always someone else who was essentially buying an outcome for them. Interesting. I think it's such a, it's such a relevant discussion. And what I like about it, Covey, is I think so many of the messages that you discuss here are relevant to families with or without behavioral health issues. You know, they're just generally smart, very common sense, but I think, as we've already discussed, harder to implement strategies to think about um, when you're dealing with children in general. And, and what we know is when you're dealing with somebody who on top of just being born, being lucky enough to be born into a family with a lot of resources, but if you're talking now somebody who has a behavioral health disorder, you're just increasing the odds um, that if you don't follow these tips and and this type of strategy as a parent, you risk really setting that person up for long-term misery, even if your intentions are good. I think that's the saddest part in our work is that we see parents with such good intentions thinking that they're doing what's right when in actuality they're doing what the person wants as opposed to what they need, if that makes sense. Yes, completely. That is so, so well put. And I think it's so interesting because I think sometimes when people hear this advice, well, I should set a limit and I should you know, help 
create a sense of work ethic in my child and hold them accountable. There's sometimes I, I hear a voice from some people like, yeah, but, yeah, but, you know, my child has this issue or my child has that issue. And so these things really wouldn't work. And what I would just say to that is I have been approached in literally multiple book talks I've given by parents who've come up to me after and have said, I can't tell you how much this book applies to the world of addiction. I just want to share with you personally a story and then they'll talk about essentially some, you know, unbelievably poignant story about how essentially until they were willing to give their child the the sort of reign to understand that their life was in their own hands and sort of understand the risk that that was going to create um, to the child, they they were not able to see a change. And addiction is not my field, so I completely defer to you guys and your expertise on this. But I have just been struck by these parents who've who've shared these stories with me. Um, and I've also heard people who say, yeah, but you know, children are different. And you know, I've got one child who can do XYZ, and I have another who can't. And there's really interesting stories in the book, too, about essentially, I guess, the power of parental expectations. And there's, there's a story from one gentleman I interviewed about how it was a, an amazing story about how he wanted to drive. And so his dad said, you know, if you start saving, I'll match what you save. And it was this like beautiful, you know, ideal story in our field. And he saved for three years and he bought a car. And then four years later, the dad, when the younger brother needed to drive, um, bought the car from the older son and gave it to the younger son. Mm. And when I was interviewing this guy he was you know much older and essentially he said that pattern repeated for his whole life um and i said why do you think your dad did that you know why do you think he treated you differently and he said well because he expected i could do more and i've been approached by a lot of people at talks too who've shared similar stories like my parent always i had a woman who said because my mom was raising wanted to raise a strong girl she made me go in and talk to the teacher who was mean to me and i had to go in and say you can't treat me like that and when the same teacher was mean in the same way a couple years later to, to her brother her younger brother the mom came in and the mom told the teacher that she shouldn't act that way and now this woman was like in her 30s and she said this is what's happened my whole life i do things and you know my brother has things done for him. And so I think there is an interesting way in which, yes, children are different, but I also think parents' expectations, differing expectations of their child, in some ways create the outcome that parents expect. Uh, So I just encourage parents to sometimes think about the paradigm that they're holding in their mind about a child's capabilities and think, what if I change that paradigm? What if I thought, what if I woke up tomorrow and thought, my kid's capable of anything? How would I treat them differently? It's a great final question, Covey. Thanks, Diana. (laughs) So we usually ask our guests to close on a tidbit, a nugget of information that you would like to leave the audience with in addition to that question. Sure. Well, you know, I think Look, I'm a parent too, and I'm by no means <laughs> the perfect parent. You know, I think that I think part of what I've learned through this process of writing this book and having these stories from these wonderful now grown kids, you know, living in my head is that 
it's helpful to have these stories and it's helpful to have, as I said before, you know, keep your mind focused on the outcome you want for your child, which is, you know, a functioning, capable, uh, you know, sometimes I say, when you think, when parents are sort of asked the reflexive question, what do you want for your child? Most parents think, I want them to be happy. But then when you think to yourself, what do I want for myself as an adult going through the world? What I mostly want for myself is a sense of capacity. Like I, I can do this. I can handle today. I can handle what might come up today. Um, or geez, you know, as a parent, I can handle what might happen to my child. I'll know how to help them. Um, and so if you recast as a parent the goal for your child, not as happiness, but that they become that adult going through the world with that sense of capacity. It changes how you think about every day. And it actually gives you the fortitude to get yourself through the discomfort when they're unhappy that you're not helping. Uh, and so sometimes the last question I leave my, my clients with is, in, in every situation that comes up for your child, you might want to, instead of asking, how can I help? you might ask yourself the question, what is the role I need to play in this situation so that the outcome, whatever that is, good or bad, will my child will feel as if they earned that outcome on their own, mm -hmm. that it was as a result of their own effort and their own doing. And when that's the question you ask yourself, usually the answer is nothing. There's nothing I should do other than be an empathetic sort of co-pilot and you know, moral support. But other than that, not much. And that's a very different approach and a very counterintuitive approach. And I see it in my own daily life that there's what you want to do. And then uh, just like what you said, Arden, there's the help children want and there's the help they need. It's the same as parents. There's what you want to do and there's what I think you need to do. And that is, those are often totally different. And it takes some reminding of yourself <laughs> to help <laughs> kind of steal yourself to do those things or to not do them. Wonderful. Covey, you've been an amazing guest. Thank you for the sound advice, the clear thinking, and your willingness to sort of go out on a limb advising our guests and, and people listening that maybe the easy route isn't necessarily the most beneficial for everybody. Such a pleasure to talk with you both, and thank you all for your work. It's really such a, such, it's so critical for so many of our families. So thank you. Thank you, Covey. Thank you all for joining another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Like us on your social media if you have that capacity, or rate us on iTunes if that is your chosen vehicle for listening. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.